The goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to one more episode of the Data Transformers. Uh, me, Ramesh, and then Peggy here. And today we are excited to introduce a gentleman, Dr. Patrick Bengard. Uh, he's with Samsung SDS, is the Vice President of Artificial Intelligence at Samsung SDS. Patrick, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you, Peggy. So let's get right into it, uh, Patrick. So we will call you Patrick as opposed to Dr. Bangert. It might seem very formal. So, so you said you're okay with it. So we'll stick with it. Yeah, so, thank you. It's, a, it's an interesting anecdote. I'm, I'm German uh, okay. by origin. And until uh, four years ago, I lived in Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. So there people call me Dr. Bangert. And then as soon as I transitioned to America, I became Patrick. So it's it's one of those cultural idiosyncrasies of whatever locale uh, you, you live in. And I, I think this colloquialism is actually very nice and it, it removes uh, artificial borders. That's right. When you are in Rome, be like Roman. That's right. That's right. So with that, Patrick, um, you are a vice president of artificial intelligence at Samsung SDS. The only Samsung that I know is my phone. Right. So explain to us the differences of Samsung SDS. Uh, what do you do at Samsung, if you don't mind, please? So like many other uh, major brands in, in the world, um, the brand Samsung is actually made up of about 20 different legal entities that are called Samsung something. So the phone that you might have is by a company called Samsung Electronics, the TV by Samsung Display, the chips by Samsung Semiconductor, and so on and so forth. Uh, you can even buy home appliances like a washing machine from Samsung. Mm -hmm. And the software in the company is written by the Samsung SDS. SDS stands for uh, Samsung Data Services. And it's the IT company. We run the data centers for the group um, as well as for other companies. We write software. And within uh, the IT company, Samsung SDS, there is a division called Artificial Intelligence. I had that division and we mainly do two things. So there is one department called uh, AI engineering, mm -hmm. which writes software to do AI training. So we're concerned with uh, things like distributed training, auto ML, uh, these kinds of algorithmic questions. And the next department is the AI sciences where we actually do data science and artificial intelligence projects for a particular use case. So you might wanna do a natural language model so that you can talk to your mobile phone. Uh, you might wanna do fingerprint or facial recognition so you can identify that you are the correct owner of that mm -hmm. phone. Um, you might wanna do uh, you know, textual recognition so that you can respond to a question with, with a sentence answer that makes sense. Uh, autonomous driving, you know, identify, is there an obstacle in the road? Is that obstacle a person or, or, or a, a, you know, a rigid? obstacle, uh, all sorts of things like this. Um, the models are done by, by AI sciences. Uh, so those That's are the, a, the two major streams. 
That's really exciting. Um, I mean, love to hear more um, from a consumer perspective. You know, most of us are probably consumers of Samsung pr uh, products. Um, you know, can you give a little bit more specific example of uh, something that we have and use that really has integrated um, like AI technology in it? Uh, yeah, I mean, every product of Samsung has some AI technology integrated. Um, of course, the prime product is the phone. Um, you will see an application on your mobile phone called Bixby, um, which is the natural language driver um, of that. It's the equivalent of Siri on the Apple iPhones. Mm. Um, so you can talk to your phone, right? You can say, um, Bixby, uh, what's the weather tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And then it will... Um, search for whatever the weather is tomorrow and let you know. So uh, that kind of command and control module based on speech is one application. Um, another is that you're um, usually required to identify yourself uh, with a fingerprint on your, on your phone, right? So that scanner and identifying is that in fact the right fingerprint and so on, that's uh, a small piece of simple AI and so on and so forth. So Patrick, uh, looks like you have two sets of customers. One is a larger consumer base, like the, you know, the customers of uh, Samsung devices, and you have an internal audience of the vast Samsung empire that is there, different organizations that need uh, data science and artificial intelligence service. Um, so given the two sets of these uh, customers that you have internal as well as external, then uh, I mean, how, first thing is, how do you prioritize the projects? I'm assuming there are two separate divisions. Maybe there's you no know, priority kind of stuff. But within that, the requirements are you know, different from what I could see from here. So could you talk a little bit about the, the dynamics of your organization, how you serve different sets of customers? Right. Um, so actually, uh, we don't really serve two different sets of customers. OK. Um, of course, the customer of Samsung devices is, in general, an individual. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Samsung SDS, as the IT company, generally doesn't sell to individuals. Um, uh, you know, an, an individual wouldn't want a data center in his basement. Mm -hmm. um, or uh, generally, people wouldn't want an AI model for themselves. They want to use one that already exists. Um, and that, I think, goes across the board for all of the artificial intelligence companies that you might talk to. They create the artificial intelligence for another business. The deployment of that model might be for a, a consumer uh, or an end user or you know, a single human being use case, such as the natural language processing. Um, you know, you want to be able to speak to your phone and have your voice be recognized and for your phone to do whatever it is you, you told it to do. Mm -hmm. um, but it would be completely infeasible to generate a model to do that just for you. Um, it's just simply too expensive um, to create that sort of thing. It's a major effort to create a natural language processing model. Um, two months ago, GPT-3 was released as the new state-of-the-art language model and the world kind of um, both uh, you know felt in awe of the the accuracy of it but also laughed at it a little bit that it cost five million dollars in electricity to train correct and mm -hmm. um, so that's just the cost to train the model 
not taking into account the software that had to be written prior to that training process. So generating a model like this is a lot of work, costs a lot of money, and therefore it's always going to be an enterprise project. Um, so everything that we do, both in writing the software for AI training, as well as the AI trainings themselves, are always business-to-business uh, -business transactions. Um, and at, at so-called inference, when the model is uh, fully ready and it just needs to be used in a particular instance, that, that's called inference. Mm -hmm. At that point, it becomes a business-to-consumer transaction. Um, and then, of course, is, is hopefully... Uh, cheap and fast. I think the, the question that Ramesh may have been asking more is how do you prioritize, right? If there's, these are large scale B2B um, efforts, right? Um, to build a model, train the model. How does your team or how do you as, as head of the team prioritize which ones um, are done first? Or is there any type of um, framework that you follow or influences that help you with that prioritization? Well, at the end of the day, we're a commercial enterprise. So the prioritization is, is very simply done by uh, cash flow. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, it becomes a matter of, of that. Um, and if it's an internal project, then um, of course it depends on the priorities of Samsung Group, um, which then uh, either is a matter of negotiation or gets decided at, at a higher level. And how much of the your do you have flexibility in terms of um, doing innovative things that are not part of the schedule, or is, is everything really following the lines of, of the priorities from headquarters? No, we have a great amount of freedom. Um, so actually, a, a few months ago, I decided that uh, COVID nineteen was worth studying. Mm. So um, we spent, uh, I think, about three months or so developing an AI diagnostic model for COVID. Um, as you might know, uh, you can take a nasal swab test, uh, right, which means a, a rather fancy Q-tip is inserted in your nose, and then there's a chemical test to follow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It takes about two days for you to get the answer back, and the accuracy is about 94%. Um, so if you get a negative, that doesn't mean you don't have COVID. It just means the chance that you don't have COVID is 94%. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, when people come to a hospital and they're actively sick and they need medication, those two days waiting time is, is a little dangerous. So we thought, okay, can we speed this up a little bit? Um, it turns out that you can take an X-ray image of your lungs and based on those, we have now an, an AI model trained up with, that we did past few months uh, with 95% accuracy, detect whether or not you have COVID versus pneumonia, flu, and so on. So the accuracy of that is actually higher than the nasal swab, and it's immediate. You don't need to wait for anything because you, you simply do the X-ray and that's it. Um, you have the answer right away. So you save yourself two days worth uh, of, of waiting time. And that means you can get your medication um, two days faster. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a project that I simply decided ad hoc, uh, uh, you know, three months ago to, to do because it seemed the right thing to do and the timely thing to do. Mm -hmm. So we, we do have the freedom to do things as we see fit. Interesting. And so timely. And again, 
um, what our um, you know country and world needs right now. How did you get the training data though for yeah. for that model? I'm I'm curious. Uh, we we got super lucky um, that other people were willing to chip in and help out. Um, so of course we are the AI experts, right? Um, we're not physicians. Uh, we don't have an X-ray machine, mm -hmm. so uh, we had to rely on partners of ours um, to do that for us. So uh, there was one um, a hospital chain that donated the X-ray images. There was a set of six uh, doctors who donated their time in labeling those images and in saying this is an example of pneumonia and this is an example of COVID and so on. Mm. Um, and so all that was assembled by other people um, and we just did the AI. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's very simple. We just do the AI. That's, that's great, Patrick. The way it's <laughs> Just the AI. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 hard, the hard labor was on other people. I mean, you, you can imagine um, how much effort it takes uh, to do uh, a number of x-rays. So we had 15,000 images in, in the database. So that means 15,000 individuals had to be x-rayed. Mm. Every one of those individuals had to sign uh, a form releasing uh, their x-ray for our use Right. Other, otherwise, yeah. electronic medical record is your private property. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So you have to explicitly release it so that, I mean, just that amount of paperwork is, is, is a lot of effort. Yeah. So actually, Patrick, even though you said it kind of, uh, I think, like heartedly, but so you're bringing a really good point, which is the data versus model, right? The amount of time that, uh, you know, the organizations or people involved in this have to spend on data, labeling it, making sure that's high quality and curating the data. Even the process that you talked about, even getting the signatures from people, especially in healthcare, which is a private property, is itself you know, time sink, right? So the question in this case is, I mean, we spoke to another uh, uh, AI vice president and she said, you know, 70, 80% of the time the data science people spend is the data wrangling, data munging, you know, making sure that uh, the integrity is there. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about what is involved in getting a project out, an artificial intelligence project out with respect to, you know, different phases, making sure that there's a data strategy in place, that, that you know, the data integrity, integrity is, you know, bought into. So if you could bring out the key aspects of an you know, AI project. Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, and I, I completely agree with uh, my predecessor that it's about 80% of the effort to get a good data set. Um, so the, the key aspects are these. At the very beginning, you have to decide what it is that you want to do. What's your problem that you're trying to solve? And you have to be precise about this. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm a mathematician. So when I say precise, I'm, I'm, I mean that numerically, Yeah. right? So it, you need to decide what is it that you're going to do exactly? What kind of accuracy does the model have to have to fulfill its purpose? Obviously in medical applications, the accuracy is the end all and be all mm -hmm. um, of it. In many other applications, that's not the case. We can get away with a low accuracy model and still be profitable, uh, but not, not for medicine. Right. And um, then you have to get your data set. Um, the first is to get the raw data set. In our case, um, X-raying 15,000 people. Uh, that alone takes some effort. Um, and obviously, sorry for uh, interjecting. Was the X-ray data done specifically the purpose of the project, or it was already done 
and then you were able to get your hands on it. Um, it was done for this uh, analysis. Okay, sorry. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that that's that's what we would call the raw data. Mm -hmm. Now, the raw data needs to be representative of the situation, um, which is to say, in this case, an X-ray image of a foot or a hand or uh, an arm wouldn't help because it's a lung disease. We need X-rays of lungs. Yeah. Um, it also needs to be representative of the problem that you're trying to solve. We're trying to distinguish COVID from not COVID. Um, in other words, we need a similar number of images of COVID-affected lungs as opposed to not COVID-affected lungs. It doesn't help us if we have 15,000 images of healthy people. Um, so two versions of representation are necessary, right? Representation right. of the situation, that's the lung x-ray. Representation of the problem, uh, x-rays of COVID and non-COVID patients. That's your raw data. Now you need to label the data, which means that experts, in this case, doctors, had to go in and identify which is which. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you have to take account of the fact that the doctors are not correct 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, you find, um, you know, not getting personal to anybody, but a typical doctor is accurate to about 80%. Wow. Right, which means that 20% is incorrectly identified, which means that every single image needs to be looked at by at least three people mm -hmm. to uh, identify any misunderstandings that they might have and to reconcile that. So it's, it's democracy voting. Wow. So if you have 15,000 images, you have to get at least 45,000 labels done. Right? But is and, it, uh, uh, sorry, Patrick, I mean, is it necessarily the doctor being incorrect or the x-ray of that patient just didn't show enough COVID deterioration or damage in order to assess? Like there, I'm sure there were samples where it was undeterminable. Exactly, yeah. There are so-called edge cases, um, which is the situation where it's very difficult to tell um, which is which. Uh, and those become the most heatedly contested cases, of course. And then you have these three or four or five doctors in a room arguing it out. Um, and as a data scientist, I, I just have to shut up and wait, right? Because I don't know what's going on. <laughs> It's their responsibility to resolve this. Um, and so really, I, I, I can't contribute to that question. And th this is important for data scientists to know that labeling the data is a domain expert activity. It's not a data scientist activity, mm. right? And so I cannot contribute to this at all. I simply have to hand it over and, uh, and trust in the process. And I'm also curious about your, your sample size of 15,000. Was it all in one city or in one country? Or did you try to dis distribute that across you know, different nationalities, age? Um, so the sample size, I assume, of the patients was also dis well distributed enough for the AI model to work. Yeah, well. um, thank you. That's an excellent point. Um, that goes into it needs to be representative of the situation, mm -hmm. which is, of course, people. Uh, and therefore, we need to have young people and old people and, uh, you know, men and women and uh, people from all sorts of uh, ethnic backgrounds and whatnot. So in this case, it was within the United States only. 
Um, but um, we, we did have young and old and male and female and people from various uh, ethnic backgrounds uh, represented uh, in that um, roughly according to whatever percentage they occur in the population. Great, great. So actually now we are getting into the two other topics of, that relate to AI, which they by themselves will take a long time for us to get. One is uh, the ethical aspects. What Peggy was asking, was there a bias to the sample that could have precluded us from you know, properly determining the thing, right? It's one aspect of it. Right? So is there an ethical aspect of AI, ethical AI? The second piece is the explainable AI, right? That is gaining a lot of ground nowadays where it's like in, in the past, we could get away with saying, okay, this is what the prediction was, you know, and then people will shut up and listen, right? But now people are asking questions. Okay, now tell me, how did you, what was the model saying? So the explainable AI. So what's your take on the both aspects? And I know both themselves are very deep topics, but at the high level, can, can we touch upon those two things? Yeah, they're really excellent questions. Now with ethical, um, so I'm, I'm on the board of the AI ethics journal. Um, so it's, it's definitely a topic that I believe is important and that, that I support. Um, you know, we've seen in the last couple of years, several use cases that I think should never have happened. Um, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, AI was used to grade A-level students. Um, really? That, that's really bad. I, in my personal opinion, that's really bad because you're determining uh, the future uh, of the rest of the lives of teenagers based on an AI model. Um, I mean, even if you have only like, 5% uh, loss in your model, it means that 5% of the population is going to have a much worse grade than they would have gotten in a real test. So there are examples where AI simply shouldn't be used. Um, and then there are examples where AI is being misused. So for example, a lot of facial recognition software is trained on Caucasian faces like mine and then it's deployed on uh, African faces and then it simply doesn't work. Um, but then if, if police and other um, entities use that, mm -hmm. um, you know, then, then a lot of misuse will result from this. So um, typically speaking, um, from what I have seen, the problems with ethical AI come either in using AI for something that it's simply not suited for, okay. or uh, training the AI with a data set that is not representative of the situation that you were dealing with, mm -hmm. like using Caucasian faces for facial recognition and then deploying it on African faces. That doesn't work. Um, AI itself um, doesn't have any ethical component, right? The neural network will learn whatever you give it. Um, but if your data contains a bias, then the neural network will learn your bias too. Yeah. And that's where the problem lies. Um, so it's typically a data set problem. Um, so um, ethical AI, yes, uh, it's a very important thing. Now explainable AI, I think the one use case where um, now even uh, lawmakers are starting to require AI mm -hmm. is in the finance domain. Um, you go to a bank and you apply for a loan and you get rejected. Yeah. And then you ask, why did I get rejected? Well, the thing is that there wasn't any person that actually looked at your loan application. It was some AI neural network that did that. And, right. 
Of course, the curious thing is that when your loan gets approved, nobody asks for an explanation. Yeah, that's that. right. Uh, so somehow that needs to be incorporated. Now, the problem is um, that, you know, people like myself, mathematicians who've been doing this for a long time, we've always said AI has benefits and AI has drawbacks. And one of the AI drawbacks is that it's a black box. Um, so you kind of need to know that when you go in, right? The price you pay for a, the reduction in labor and all the automation and whatnot is that you will not understand the result. And now people are turning around and saying, I want to understand the result. So that's a conundrum in itself. Um, the field of AI is trying to solve that problem, but it is to be realistic, very much a research topic at this time. Explainable AI is not a technology that is available. Yeah. Um, it's a topic that's being researched. So if you wanna get a PhD in artificial intelligence, this is a grand topic to pick as your dissertation. Um, if you want to purchase uh, explainable AI, then at this moment, you're out of luck. Um, there are some attempts, some first attempts towards this, um, especially in this kind of loan use case, because it's now being actually required by, by governments and by regulators to supply that. So there is some very simple-minded checking going on uh, to give you some feedback. Is there, I mean, I've also heard the term transparency in, in addition to explainability of AI. Is, is there a, a difference in, in those in using those two words and and also why is it so difficult to uncover and unveil the black box I mean is it that hard to explain the rules in the algorithm for the consumer so that they understand why they were rejected for a credit card or for a, like a mortgage loan it is yes unfortunately um and uh, you, you can think of it like this. If you go to, um, let's say you go to a, a college university class on physics, they will present you with a differential equation for something, right? Uh, I don't know, heat, heat conductivity in a metal or something. Yeah, that's a very short differential equation. It has like three terms in it. You can write it on the back of a note card. Um, you can explain roughly what it does in three sentences and pretty much everybody who knows what a differential is will understand what that equation portrays. Now, a neural network might easily have a thousand terms in it. Yeah, yeah. the kind of equation is the same, right? A, a neural network is, is, is nothing other than multiplying matrices with vectors, um, Maybe uh, you need to do a few little pre-processing pre steps like taking a derivative and doing a summation and whatnot. It's not very complicated in the mathematical sense, but the number of terms in your equation is very, very large indeed. Um, and that's because basically <clears throat> you're going through a large number of different combinations and you're assigning a coefficient to each one. Many of them might be small, but they're still there. Um, and now try to explain somebody how this thousand-termed equation hangs together. 
uh, you can't do that in two or three sentences anymore. Um, and if you try to simplify it by simply getting rid of all the small coefficient terms, um, your model starts to lose accuracy. Mm. And then you might be tempted to explain something that's just plain wrong because it's no longer the model you ha had to start out with. That's the situation. Um, so the empirically produced model is a lot more complex than a model that you and I might produce as human beings. Right, because we what we will do is we will make first of all simplifying assumptions, um, and we will put sort of the rough outlines together, which work for the most part, and we will let the let the details be details and sort of shift them under the rug a little bit. Mm. The neural network won't do any of that. It will look at the details and the details only. It will not make simplifying assumptions. Um, it will not have an understanding of the situation at large, it will simply compare details with details and do all of this. So you arrive with a large, large number of coefficients and understanding what each of them do is, is difficult because they're interdependent. So unfortunately, yes, it's difficult to explain what a neural network uh, does. It's very easy to explain what a neural network is in generality. Mm. But it's very difficult to explain what a particular neural network actually does to get to its output because you have so many coefficients. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you. <laughs>